Um, today's a great day for me, everyone, because um, Serena Williams won Wimbledon. And um, now, why is that a great day for me? It's because Serena Williams, uh, she's better looking than I am, um, but, but I'm younger. So. <laughs> So someone older than me won Wimbledon, so I, I, it's, it's a tremendous privilege for me to share a stage uh, with all these distinguished, distinguished figures up here. Uh, once again, as I said two years ago, uh, you know, it's intimidating to share a stage with, with such great distinguished names and in the presence of somebody like Cardinal Lorenzo here. Um, I wanted, before I, before I speak, before I start the substance of my talk, I want to acknowledge a lot of the people whose contributions to a big event like this tend to go unacknowledged. People behind the scenes here who make these things happen. Um, we have Mike Feckler and his staff, Teresa Francis and Zach, and everybody behind the scenes who's been working really hard, Niall with his camera, um, you know, Ken Ferguson and his staff, Dr. O'Donnell, the ladies from Chef Dennis's staff over here bringing us coffee and caffeine and food to keep us going. All th it, it, it's an amazing operation when you see the college transformed like this, and, and the, the behind the scenes work is all too often unacknowledged. Uh, so a great shout out to those people. Thanks for, for everything that you do. Um, so, we are going to tackle John Henry Newman now, and, and this, it's interesting. Uh, John Henry Newman is obviously one of the towering figures of the 19th century world, right? And it presents a sort of intimidating subject matter for any speaker, okay? And, and we, we do have to make this point when we're talking about Newman. Part of the reason why you can have, you can have 10 speakers come up in a row and, and talk about Newman, uh, it's because really to collate and master Newman's literary output uh, would be beyond any one man, I think. Uh, it would be the work of many lifetimes, even for the great Newman scholars, even for an Ian Carr, right? In, in the 125 years since the death of, of Cardinal Newman, there have been scholars that have given their whole careers to Newman's thought. Uh, the body of literature devoted to Newman's thought it includes contributions in virtually every European tongue, and it's one of the few bodies of literature that's larger than Newman's own works. Right? So unpacking Newman, uh, it's a tremendously intimidating thing. Now there might be some immediate objections th then to my taking up this subject today, the subject of, of Newman's historical epistemology, which is my subject. So what is historical epistemology? It sounds incredibly dense, it sounds incredibly heavy, what does that mean? Very simply it means the kind of knowing that is proper to the historian's craft. What does it mean when we say that we can know something through historical science or through the historian's craft, right? Now this is a difficult subject for anyone, right? Uh, understanding Newman's historical epistemology would be difficult even for experts on Newman's thought, which I cannot claim to be. Um, and then you also might ask, why does it seem appropriate at a conference on the new evangelization to hold up a 19th century intellectual as a model and a paradigm? Uh, or for that matter, from amidst all the great riches of Newman's writings, both as an Anglican and as a Catholic, why would I focus specifically on his insights and contributions as a historian, right? So I think to, to kind of answer the twin objections at once, so the, on the one hand, it's a, it's a very difficult subject. On the other hand, this is the new evangelization. Why are we dredging up the 19th century? Uh, what I'd say is actually the, the difficulty of the subject is outweighed by its timeliness for the church, for the historical profession, and especially for scholars who seek to serve the church intermission of evangelization in today's world, both within and outside the professional academy, I would note. The very nature of our historical knowing, right? not only the question of how to approach the past, but whether we can know anything about the past at all, truly. It's been the subject of a few decades worth of interminable, uh, often incoherent debate. So within the profession, within the historical profession, right? 
you have some highly influential intellectual movements that have arisen, uh, some of which have sought to reduce history either to some species of literary criticism, right? And if you reduce history to some species of literary criticism, <clears throat> then what happens? Historical scholarship becomes all about the preoccupations of the present day, which today is gender, bodies, and borders, sexual deviancy in the Middle Ages, and the, uh, the whole nine yards. It, it's amazing what you see coming out in professional journals today. Uh, anything you wanted to know about 13th century homosexuality, you can, you can learn, right? Uh, it's, it, it's amazing. Um, or if it's not that, right, it becomes some kind of similarly fad-driven soft science, right, in which the dominant trends in sociology and anthropology, however sophisticated they may be, right, they're painted onto the past as onto a blank canvas, okay. And, uh, you know, this, this, is, this is really fascinating because then what happens is the historian becomes an artist with his mind. Right? Instead of a trained intellect seeking truth or seeking the past, the historian becomes a kind of an artist, right? using theory, using whether it's gender theory, anthropology, sociology, or psychology, and these theories are constantly changing, and the fads come and go, and they go in and out. Um, Neo-Marxism plays into this as well, but you can become an artist with your mind, just like a modern philosopher, right? Uh, and, in, and so instead, the, the, the intelligible past disappears, right? The intelligible past goes away. So these trends, they've tended to transform the study of the past from this enterprise where a trained intellect is seeking real knowledge into something quite different. And uh, I think that there is, if I can make an imperfect analogy to the history of philosophy, uh, there is something to be found here in the departure of philosophy from traditional realism since Descartes. Uh, sorry if this analogy limps or, or if it obscures more than it illuminates. You know, the, the ancients and the medievals took it for granted that the intellect could know real things as they were. And that was the point of philosophy. That was the point, as Barack Obama would say. Uh, the point was to know real things, right? Now, the moderns, beginning with Descartes, they undermine philosophical realism so thoroughly as to render the whole enterprise of philosophy all about other things, whether it's the study of our own knowledge, the study of our own experience, uh, the study of ourselves. It, it, it becomes all about, uh, it becomes bracketed, right, into this kind of subjectivism about reality, right? And so the philosopher becomes either an artist with his mind, unmoored from any fealty to an external reality at all, or even less attractively, I think much more boringly, the philosopher becomes a mere describer of language and its uses, right? And, and this can happen to historians too. Now, the philosophy analogy, it might obscure more than it illuminates. Um, the average Christian or Catholic is not aware of being affected in his day-to-day -day life by analytic philosophy. You don't wake up in the morning and check your iPhone for updates on analytic philosophy um, or the, the latest commentary on Hegel, right? But I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, even a well-educated Catholic, even a well-educated Catholic who attends Institute of Catholic Culture talks all the time with Deacon Sabatina, right? <laughs> even a well-educated Catholic feels like his faith is being challenged when you have scholars and experts in the secular sciences expressing wildly heterodox opinions about the life of Christ, about the mission of the apostles, about the pre-Nicene church. You know, if Jesus was just some, a, a Gnostic preacher with a wife and his original religion was some grab bag of occult mysticisms from Babylon, uh, and that the, you know, somehow from amidst all the diversity of, of pre-Nicene Christianity, certain strands were selected by Roman emperors and chosen as the orthodox ones, uh, then we have a problem. The very foundations of our faith are historical, right? And, and so we have to get this right. There's a lot at stake when it comes to the intellectual question of historical epistemology, right? We can, it's of great weight for our faith 
that we cannot allow historical epistemology to be reduced to some kind of skepticism. We can't allow history to be reduced to simply the telling of stories or something like that. You know, on, on a much more popular level, I think, it's one of the most prevalent pseudo-wisdoms of the modern world that you hear all the time, that all historical conclusions can be reduced fundamentally to the prejudices or the worldview of the historian. All right? The pendulum has swung very, very far from the extreme scientific optimism of 19th century thinkers. And perhaps the 19th century thinkers were overly ambitious. I mean, I'll grant you, you can look at Leopold von Ranke and say he's, he's overly ambitious about scientific history. He, he described it as Geschichte wie es eigentlich gewesen, right? History as it actually was. And so you have the, this German idealism. Maybe it made them overly idealistic. But with all due respect, with all due respect to the criticisms of, of von Ranke, I think the, the postmodern skepticism about finding truth through historical science is more poisonous and, and deeply problematic, and the pendulum has swung too far. Uh, and it's in this respect that I'd like to look at Newman, right? Because if we look at John Henry Cardinal Newman, we find a powerful counterexample. We find a man whose historical research, right, his historical research, as distinct from his religious convictions, as distinct from his philosophical or theological convictions, his historical research led him unwillingly against all his prejudices against all his preconceptions, against the whole bent of his intellectual formation, his historical research led him to embrace the Roman Catholic faith. Thus, briefly, my thesis today is that Cardinal Newman, underrated as he is as a historian, that he can serve as an example for Catholic historians speaking to the world of secular scholarship, speaking in the profession, right, and speaking of Christian history to the non-Christian world of our profession, as well as to popular audiences and students, and that he serves as this example precisely because Cardinal Newman possessed in combination a confident approach to the obtaining of historical knowledge in the true sense, along with the erudition, the tools, and the work ethic to dig for that knowledge. And in a more specific way, I'm going to argue, Cardinal Newman's approach to the history of the early church, particularly the church before the Council of Nicaea, that this can serve as a seedbed of inspiration for a new generation of scholars of late antiquity seeking to escape the tyranny of certain postmodern methodological approaches that dominate the profession. And we're going to go into those a little bit as well. I hope you won't be too bored by it, but it's kind of fascinating, I think. Uh, the consequences and implications for our faith and our church are, of course, immense, guys. There's a lot at stake here. You can't go and combat secular scholarship, scientific, academic scholarship, with, with simple two-bit, um, sincere as it may be, Catholic apologetics. It doesn't work. It's like going to a machine gun fight with a plastic spork. Okay. You need real scholarship to combat this stuff, and, and Newman is the model for us as scholars. So, Newman's great study of, of the Arians of the fourth century, I think, it's, it's an absolute monument of erudition. Uh, it was released when he was younger than Serena Williams is now, uh, 1833. Now, his, uh, his command of the subtleties and nuances uh, involved in the Arian controversy, whether theological, philosophical, social, or political, along with a sheer volume of, of source material that he displays mastery of, it commands immense respect more than 180 years after its publication. Newman begins with an extraordinarily clear framing of Arianism as a historical phenomenon within the church, explaining in his first paragraph that he proposes to trace the origins of Arianism between the first and second general councils. Right? Now, when he says that, he, he's framing the issue chronologically. He says, when we look at Arianism historically within the church, we're talking about the period between Nicaea, which is 325 AD, and the Council of Constantinople, which is 381. These, he argues, are Arianism's natural chronological limits, whether by Arianism we mean a heresy or a party in the church. 
Okay, beyond this, he would say, beyond 381, he would say Arianism exists as a phenomenon outside the church, an extra-ecclesiastical phenomenon. Uh, so he begins, he says, in, in the council held at Nicaea in Bithynia, AD 325, Arianism was formally detected and condemned. In the subsequent years, it ran its course through various modifications of opinion and with various success till the date of the second general council held, AD 381, at Constantinople, when the resources of heretical subtlety being at length exhausted, the Arian party was ejected from the Catholic body and formed into a distinct sect exterior to it. It was during this period, 325 to 381, while it still maintained its hold upon the creeds and the government of the church, that it especially invites the attention of the student in ecclesiastical history. Afterwards, he says, Arianism presents nothing new in its doctrine and is only remarkable as becoming the animating principle of a second series of persecutions when the barbarians of the north who were infected with it possessed themselves of the provinces of the Roman Empire. So, very, very clear framing that we see here, historically speaking. Now, what Newman does in order to illustrate the character of the controversy, he has to kind of delve into the, the murky origins of Arianism um, before the, in the age before Constantine liberated the church from persecution. He has to dive into the world of the anti-Nicene church, the pre-Council of Nicaea church. Uh, and of course, it's neither the time nor the place for a blow-by-blow -blow treatment of his account of it. Uh, but I want to make the point that Newman's handling of incredibly disparate, technical, difficult source material laden with philosophical and theological subtlety. It's not just the work of an able theologian. It's the work of a historian who's master of his craft. He's a master uh, contextualizer. He's a master at historicizing what would otherwise be misleading and potentially confusing theological debate. Theological debate which could actually easily be cherry-picked to create real apologetical problems for the church. This is a major point, right? It's not Newman the theologian to the rescue here. It's Newman the historian. Okay, now here's why. One doesn't find in the anti-Nicene church the kind of technical precision and philosophical language used to describe the divine mysteries like the Trinity or the Incarnate Word. One doesn't find the technical precision that you find in the ecumenical councils themselves, right? This makes sense. Of, of course you don't, right? That precision in technical language was precisely what was at stake at the, at the ecumenical councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, uh, the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, right? It was the gift of the fourth and fifth century councils to the history of the church. So when you're searching for pre-Nicene teaching among the pre-Nicene fathers on Christ or the Trinity, um, you could do what some do, uh, what some historians have done, what, what some uh, Protestant apologists in the 19th century actually did, um, which was you could just say, well, it's a jungle out there. Holy smoke. There really was no settled Christianity or orthodoxy in this period, was there? Uh, you could do what, what modern post-structuralists do with the source material. Uh, you, you could bring in the post-structuralism of Derrida or Michel Foucault and just say, well, you have, you have multiple Christianities here. And the, the Christianity that we come to know and love later on, it's really a creation of the Roman emperors. Um, you know, and you, you could just do that if you want. Right? Until you have Newman the historian, Newman the contextualizer, coming in and putting things right, right? Not a, a two-bit, not, not Newman as a two-bit religious apologist, right? He's not even arguing from his faith. He's arguing from historical science. And he points out how when dealing with the writings and fragments of figures like Justin Martyr and Origen, 
Gregory of Neo Caesarea, or even of Athanasius himself. He says, of course, it's easy to find examples of disparate modes of expression drawn from the technical vocabulary of an eclectic mix of Greek philosophical schools, a very eclectic mix of, of Greek philosophy. Much of it is very different from what was codified later at the councils, and you see the implications here. But Newman, with immense precision, with a keen eye for historical context, which is something that's often lacking in contemporary ecclesiastical debates about anything, um, he's able to show how these anti-Nicene patristic writings, fragments and dialogues of the fathers, they actually represent the fathers accommodating their speech to the specific needs of the various unbelievers that they were trying to convert. Okay. Newman calls this the economy of language. The anti-Nicene fathers in these instances, they weren't trying to hammer out an orthodox Christology or something in the face of a dissident Christology because, as of yet, there was no clear emergence of a dissident Christology. There was no heretical Christology yet. That was clear. Rather, what the, what the fathers are doing before Nicaea is ministering to Jew and Greek alike according to their needs. And so despite this variation in pre-Nicene theological formulations, Newman argues, it's the Arians who are the innovators. The Arians are too clever by half. They emerge as innovators, and it's they who are corrected and anathematized at Nicaea. It was their heresy, Newman further argues, which received unnatural long life through the support of the emperors. Right? It was not Orthodox Christianity, but rather Arianism, whose life was, was basically put on a life support machine by Constantine and Constantius II, and through the energy and creativity of Arian partisans, until by the Second Ecumenical Council of 381, it was clear to all that Arianism was formed into a sect exterior to the Catholic Church, and I quote Newman now, and taking refuge among the barbarian invaders of the empire, Arianism is merged among those enemies of Christianity whose history cannot be regarded as strictly ecclesiastical. Now what's fascinating for us is how Newman's original motive, <laughs> you guys know, his, his original motive for being interested in the anti-Nicene Church and the Arian controversy was to find a way to vindicate the Anglican position as a kind of a via media between the, the infidelity and apostasy of the papacy on the one hand and the excesses of the Protestants on the other hand. Right? He wanted to vindicate the Anglican position as, as the via media. Now it's fascinating because all of his, the, the implications of his historical research here on the Arians, they disturbed him and unsettled him and yet he published this volume in 1833 as a Protestant. He remained a Protestant for 12 more years. Now it's fascinating because what we see is the excellence of his historical research actually upsetting rather than confirming his convictions. He began to see the Anglicans more and more as not being analogous to the Catholic party in the, in the early church at all, but to what he calls the semi-Arians. That is the people like Eusebius of Caesarea, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who persuaded Constantine to tolerate Arianism and, and compromise with orthodoxy. So, and furthermore, he sees the semi-Arians just like Anglicans as being dependent on the support of secular princes for the survival of their peculiarly compromised sect, doomed to be amalgamated once and for all, either to the Catholic Church or to the collection of her various alternatives and enemies outside of it. So it's, it's fascinating. We see Newman the historian actually converting Newman the brilliant Anglican divine. All right. Now, the excellence uh, and impartiality of his historical research is what fascinates me here. Because Newman, you know, he, he publishes his work as an Anglican, History of the Arians of the Fourth Century, 1833. It was reissued in a third edition in 1871, by which point Newman had been a Catholic for decades. He only had to take two sentences out of it. Right. That's how impartial and excellent it really was. And the two sentences that he took out, he put them in an appendix, and they were just kind of random flings at Catholicism that were in the original edition. Um, but the rest of it was sterling, and, and he left untouched. Right. 
Now, it's fascinating. I think this, this actually provides us with a background for understanding so many of the things that Newman says in his famous essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Uh, Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine, once again, it, it's not something that I'm going to get too ambitious in talking about, but I would argue that the essay on the development of Christian doctrine is often cited in kind of a facile way as a catch-all justification for the idea that doctrine just evolves or something like that. You can just, you can just have development or something by making up new doctrines. And, and that's explicitly contrary to everything that Newman says in there. In fact, I think if Newman were writing that same essay today, he would leave it the same. Uh, but he would retitle it an essay on the continuity of Christian doctrine because that's what it's about, right? And uh, he makes this point at the very, very beginning. Listen to this. Christianity has been long enough in the world to justify us in dealing with it as a fact in the world's history. Okay, follow me here. Newman says, Christianity's genius and character, its doctrines, precepts, and objects cannot be treated as matters of private opinion or deduction, it may indeed legitimately be made the subject matter of theories, what, whether it's moral or political excellence, what its due location in the range of ideas or facts which we possess, divine or human, etc. Right? But his point is that Christianity is no, the no, st no theory of the study or of the cloister. It has long since passed beyond the letter of documents and the reasonings of individual minds and has become public property. Its sound has gone out into all lands, its words into the ends of the world. It has from the first had an objective existence. Okay, this is his point. Christianity has had an objective existence. It has thrown itself upon the great concourse of men. Its home is in the world. And to know what it is, we must seek it in the world and hear the world's witness of it. So what is he arguing against here? What's the point? The point is, he says, there's this hypothesis, which is met with wide repetition in these latter times, and I quote him again, that Christianity does not fall within the province of history, that it is to each man what each man thinks it to be that Christianity is to each man what each man thinks it to be, and nothing else. And thus, in fact, is a mere name for a cluster or family of rival religions altogether, religions at variance with one another and claiming the same appellation, not because there can be assigned any one and the same doctrine as the common foundation of all, but because certain points of agreement may be found here and there of some sort or other by which each in its turn is connected with one and the other of the rest. Newman is way ahead of his time here, ladies and gentlemen. He could not possibly have stated more clearly uh, the opinion of the modern post-structuralist historian of late antiquity, the, 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 the kind of post-structuralist methodology that's dominated the study of late antiquity professionally since the 1970s would say precisely this, and Newman foresaw it and foretold it like a prophet in the 19th century, that this was coming, the, the, the idea of just seeing Christianity as Christianities, plural. When I gave my first conference paper, uh, as a young graduate student 10 years ago, um, I got a, I, I was a conference paper on the, the conversion of the Roman Empire, fourth century church, and uh, one of the first questions I got from the audience was about multiple Christianities in the early church. Very common uh, kind of handle or catchphrase among post-structuralist influenced historians, right? But Newman foretells this, right? And his point is that the actual hard spade work, Newman argues, the actual hard work of historical scholarship is the antidote to this, right? That, that history, he says, he's, uh, let me address one remark. He says, let, let these men consider, if they can criticize history, the facts of history can certainly retort upon them. He says, it might, I grant, be clearer on this great subject than it is. History is not a creed or a catechism. It gives lessons rather than rules. Still, no one can mistake history's general teaching in this matter, whether he accept it or stumble at it. Bold outlines and broad masses of color rise out of the records of the past. They may be dim, they may be incomplete, 
but they are definite. And this one thing at least is certain. Whatever history teaches, whatever it omits, whatever it exaggerates or extenuates, whatever it says and unsays, <laughs> Newman's conclusion is, at least the Christianity of history is not Protestantism. Right? Now, that, that fits with his polemical point, but I think we can take this passage from, from Newman, from the essay on the development of doctrine, and apply it in some sense uh, as, as the basis for forming an argument against modern post-structuralism as well, right? If you can criticize history, the facts of history can retort upon you, right? Bold outlines and broad masses of color rise out of the records of the past. They may be dim, they may be incomplete, but they are definite, right? And, and the hard work of scholarship is what's necessary to illuminate these things, okay? Many trends have come and gone in scholarship on late antiquity since Newman's time. Uh, of course, there is uh, very, very dominant throughout the 19th century was the theory of, of Gibbon, or it's um, Edward Gibbon's work on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. It placed all of late antique history into this paradigm of decline and fall and, and decadence, right? That the rise of Christianity means decadence, uh, that the rise of all this obsession with theology, it, it means a decline in civic virtue, it means ultimately the doom of the empire. Uh, it, it's a very persuasive, sort of prima facie plausible way of looking at the decline of, of the Roman Empire. There's a big reaction against Gibbon in modern times, a, a big movement um, to see late antiquity as a time not of decline and decadence, but a time of tremendous cultural creativity. But ironically enough, this movement arises not, not from a, a rediscovery of, say, the excellence of, of Christianity or the Christian genius. Uh, this movement against Gibbon actually arises in some sense from neo-Marxism. Okay. Now, this is what's interesting. Follow me here. It's a little bit dense. But um, French intellectuals, French neo-Marxist intellectuals in the 20th century, all right, began to make the argument, you know, which makes sense if you're basically a, a Marxist dialectician, that events themselves are the ephemera of history. Events are the ephemera of history. What's really going on is the movement of broad structures of thought underneath, broad, deep cultural and psychological waves, right? the movements of mentality underneath the surface. Right? And so what, we, what, what the role of the historian is to do is to kind of cherry pick and grab pieces of evidence from all over the place to illuminate the mentality of a period, right? And, and, and then simply regard events, uh, orthodoxies, theology, empires, politics, battles, and kings as ephemera, right? So this movement is very, very influential, and it's cast into incredibly sophisticated form uh, by a scholar named Peter Brown. Peter Brown utterly transformed the way that people think about early Christianity and about late antiquity. Now, you might say to yourself, well, I, I'm an devout Catholic. Uh, Peter Brown is a secular humanist at Princeton. Why do I care what Peter Brown thinks, right? But remember, these things matter. Like we were saying, Catholic apologetics can't simply be built on foundations of sand or, or feel-goodism, right? Catholic apologetics have to be built on the foundation of sound scholarly work, right? And, uh, and this is where responding to Peter Brown, I think, is an area where historians, scholars who have this vocation, you can draw from the inspiration of Newman and the way in which Newman worked scientifically with sources and worked systematically with sources. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example of how Brown operates and how you can respond to him in a, in a sort of a Newman-esque way. Uh, so, so Peter Brown, he's influenced scholarship for four decades. Among his most important works is a 1971 article called The Rise and Function of the Holy Man in Late Antiquity. He followed this work up with a number of books and monographs. And uh, his, his article on the rise and function of the holy man, it's really interesting. It provides a, a useful laboratory for examining his thought and method. 
And uh, although he, he kind of modestly describes his essay as one that merely raises problems worthy of following through for many years to come, there's a great level of conceptual and methodological maturity, okay, which is derived from Peter Brown's mastery of both English and American schools of anthropology and his mastery of 26 languages. Okay. So it's one of these things. If you're going to go deal with issues like this, you're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, you know, you, 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 you can't just go in with good intentions. So, um, so Brown, he begins the article with his observation that although scholars and particularly social historians have long noticed that the holy man and, and his important, and that, that the holy man had an important role in the society of the fifth and sixth centuries, that scholars have nevertheless failed to investigate why, why the holy man held such a role. And uh, Brown attributes this failure to the social historian's preoccupation with the lower classes of society, which led them to stress the spectacular occasions when the holy man intervened to lighten the lot of the humble and the oppressed. So Brown points out that these episodes illustrate the prestige that the holy man had already gained, but they don't explain it. Right? What he envisions as the goal of his project is the rewriting of the social and religious history of the late Roman world using this figure of the holy man his origins, his continuing function in society, to throw light on the priorities, fears, hopes, and aspirations of the average late Roman citizen. So the holy man is an exceptional figure in late antiquity for Brown. The holy man is the hermit. The holy man is the stylite. The holy man is the miracle worker. The holy man is, is, is the man that you go to when you need an exorcism for your children, right? And you find these holy men in, in late antique sources in the Eastern Mediterranean in the fifth and sixth centuries. And so, Instead of undertaking a, a Newman-esque systematic contextualization of the sources, what Brown does is he goes here and there and he grabs the things that he thinks are, are holy men, right? And he tries to find what's common about them, not because he's interested in holy men, but because he's interested in the rest of society, right? So we're, we're going to construct a, a systematic social anthropology on the basis of looking at the holy men. So uh, he's, he ends up constructing an elegant, complex theoretical structure, right? He's being an artist with his mind just like a modern philosopher, right? And what he ends up doing is, uh, he ends up arguing that the, the holy man is this guy who, he took on the vital functions that had formerly been performed by the patron in the village life of Syria, um, you know, before the, before the rise of Christianity, right? That there's this figure in a, a, a Roman Syrian village called the patron, the prostates, uh, and he says that the, the, the role of the patron was to exercise power. And uh, it, when you read Peter Brown articles, you get used to him just using Greek words and sentences just because he can. And so he, he doesn't say power, he always uses the Greek word, dunamis, dunamis. So the patron has dunamis, right? And, and through his dunamis, the patron helps villagers conduct their relations with the outside world, right? Uh, so the patron is replaced by the holy man, he argues, exercising dunamis, and this rise of the holy man who has in himself utterly objective, inalienable power marks out late antiquity as a distinct phase of religious history. Now, watch what he does here. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna quote to you from towards the end of this article on the rise and function of the holy man. All right, watch what he does. What's decisive and puzzling about the long-term rise of the holy man is the manner in which in so many ways the holy man was thought of as having taken into his person skills that had been previously preserved by society at large. The word of the holy man was supposed to replace the prophylactic spell to which anyone could have access. His blessing made amulets unnecessary. He did in a village what had previously been done through the collective wisdom of the community. The holy man, listen, was a ruthless professional a ruthless professional. And as is so often the case, his rise was a victory of men over women who had been the previous guardians of the diffuse occult traditions of their neighborhood. 
The blessing of the holy man, and not an amulet prepared by a wise woman, was what was now supposed to protect you from the effects of a green lizard that had fallen into your soup. Right. So he goes on to describe what he calls the late antique revolution, right? What, what is the late antique revolution? Seen in this way, the victory of Christianity in late Roman society, he says, it's not the victory of one god over many, this is Brown, it was the victory of men over the institutions of their past. The medieval papacy, the Byzantine lavra, the Russian starek, the Muslim caliphate. He lumps Islam in here. These are all, in their various ways, direct results of attempts of men to rule men under a distant high god. And that's what the rise of the holy man represents. So what have we done here if we're brown? All of a sudden, all the specifics of religion have been reduced to mere epiphenomena. Religion becomes an epiphenomena completely ephemeral to the history of the time. What's really going on in the time, it has to do with power, right? Power relationships. This is very much rooted in the philosophy of Michel Foucault, right? And so the, the rise of the holy man anthropologically illustrates for us how men dominate over other men and use God to do it. Now, it's fascinating. The, the reception of Peter Brown within the academy was, was absolutely tremendous over the past 40 years. He's trained many, many graduate students. There have been fetchrifts written in honor of his work. Uh, he's one of the most influential men within academia, uh, one of the most influential men of our time. In this article, the problems with his evidentiary base are not far to seek, right? Of as many vivid generalizations about social functions in East Roman village life, each is based on a single anecdote a single anecdote for each, as are his claims about the role of holy men in that context, his assertions about holy men and political power, also his definition of a holy man, it's kind of amorphous to begin with, and then it gets really weird, because he, he, start, he starts with hermits and stylites, uh, whose isolation is essential for their dunamis, and then he ends up talking about the monks of Constantinople mentioned in Theophanes Continuatus. So you have what, an unacknowledged fudging of the definition of a holy man that simply allows him to employ extra pieces of anecdotal evidence, which would otherwise be inadmissible to Peter Brown. And it must be observed, sadly, that he doesn't eliminate these flaws in his more mature works, uh, in Society and the Holy in, uh, in Late Antiquity, which was published in 1982 that by Berkeley. Uh, it, it brings together a kind of a heterogeneous collection of his essays. But what he does is he actually purports to contrast the universal mentality of the East with the universal mentality of the West by contrasting his own theories about holy men with Gregory of Tours. Right? So you, you have this arbitrary cherry picking of evidence, right? but it goes into this artistic weaving of a, an anthropological picture. Right? Now, it's fascinating. The, 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 a, the antidote to this, the antidote to this from a Catholic perspective is Catholic scholarship, right? This is what Newman has to say on this subject. He says, the intellect which has been disciplined to the perfection of its powers, the intellect which, which knows, which has learned to leaven the dense mass of facts and events with the elastic force of reason, such an intellect cannot be partial, cannot be exclusive, cannot be impetuous, cannot be at a loss. It is almost prophetic from its knowledge of history, right? There's a series of almosts that Newman then delivers. To be clear, Newman's not talking about the effects of grace or the effects of supernatural virtue. He's talking about the effects of intellectual formation. He says the mind is almost prophetic from its knowledge of history. When he says prophetic, he doesn't mean being able to predict the future. He means being able to speak to your own times, right? From a knowledge of history, you can speak to your times as the prophets did. Uh, he says the intellect, it, it, it takes its place in a catalog alongside the other ways in which the educated man has been formed. The educated man is almost heart-searching from his knowledge of human nature. He has almost supernatural charity, from uh, freedom from littleness and prejudice. The educated intellect has almost the repose of faith because nothing can startle it, right? So 
the upshot to all of this is that Newman as a historian, right, he was no mere storyteller and no mere man of faith seeking edifying narratives to fit a preconceived worldview. If Newman the historian had been seeking preconceived narratives, he would have died a Protestant. There's no doubt about it. On the contrary, it was Newman, the intellectually honest scholar of history, who was compelled by the depth of his acquaintance with the early church to convert, cutting against the grain of all his preconceived ideas, all his ideological commitments, and all his worldly interests. There's truth to be found in historical scholarship, especially important for us, in light of the fact that the very truth claims of our church and of our faith rest upon historical bases. Newman shines forth as a model for the role that the historian can play in service to the church today. No one other than the trained historian is equipped for this kind of rigorous, deep spade work that can shore up the solid foundations of the church's claims, right? And the need for history, for historical scholarship and historical education, I think should be clear to all of us. So, thank you. <laughs>